Good morning. Well, this morning, as the title indicates there, I want to share some things relating to reaching the culture in which we live in. Now, the culture has changed radically, as it was alluded to even earlier, in terms of decisions that the Supreme Court has made. And as a result of that, the culture in which we live in is not as receptive to a plain and perhaps the traditional way of relating the gospel to this unbelieving world. So I want to share out of a passage that I believe would be in the first century somewhat similar to the culture in which we live in. And I think Paul gives us some guidance in terms of how to reach this kind of a community. And basically, it's a community that has abandoned Scripture. A community or a culture that does not know and does not have a biblical worldview. And that's the situation we find ourselves in our culture. Now, let me warn you up front, I'm not going to finish this message. (laughs) I just came from another church, and it took me the whole hour just to teach one verse. So if you think I'm going to be able to get through 16 to 34, then we're not going to make it. What I'd like to do, though, is kind of give you an introduction to it, get you into the passage, and I think most of you are biblically literate enough that you can go from there and take the rest of it, and I'll give you an outline of uh, where the rest of the passage lies. I think from the beginning you'll get an idea. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 17. If you haven't turned to Acts chapter 17, that's where we'll focus on. And in this passage, Paul is on his second missionary journey. He has just been thrown out of Berea and also Thessalonica, and he was preaching, and as a result of the response of the gospel, he was thrown out. It doesn't appear from the book of Acts that he intended to stay or even go to Athens, but he was sent there by his fellow believers in order to get away from the persecution so that they wouldn't kill him. So he's not there by necessarily design, but He takes advantage of the occasion, and uh, then we'll pick up from the text there. But let me, first of all, introduce this text with this question. What happens when a culture abandons Scripture? And like I said, this is where our culture is. Our culture, as a collective group, has abandoned the Word of God, has abandoned Revelation, no longer believes that the Bible is inspired. Now, those of you know that our country is founded on biblical principles, and the founders basically found this country with a biblical worldview, but that has long been in the past. Our culture does not have a biblical worldview. In fact, the culture that we have is antagonistic to a biblical worldview, and we need to expect that and anticipate the consequences of that. What happens when a culture abandons a worldview? Number one, it loses its biblical worldview. It loses a biblical perspective. If you lose a biblical worldview, then it loses its moral foundation. And if you lose a moral foundation, then you have no basis, thirdly, for right and wrong, and that's exactly where we're at today. So it's not surprising that this last week the Supreme Court ruled in the way that it did because there's no basis to condemn the whole area of homosexuality. Now, I could talk a lot about that and where we as believers are responding probably wrongly to that whole community. 
We need to accept them and, and uh, love them, but we don't have to accept the lifestyle, and you can do both. But I don't want to get off on that because we don't have time to do that. I just want to, by way of explanation, the Supreme Court has basically said that an entire lifestyle that the Bible condemns is acceptable. In fact, we are going to be mandated to align our lives according to that decision, and churches are going to be affected, and some churches are going to have to take a stand. But there's no basis for right or wrong, so why condemn this entire community that, by the way, is very small, but it's minority community, and minorities are favored people nowadays. So our culture has no basis for right and wrong. It calls that that is evil, that that is condemned, that that the Bible clearly teaches is wrong. And because it's wrong, it's going to have consequences, and it's going to have consequences that to those that are part of that community or involved in those activities. And the unfortunate thing, those in those communities are not going to get help because there's nothing wrong in the thinking of the culture, so there's no need to help people overcome these things. They have called wrong or evil good, and uh, that's where we find ourselves. So fourthly, what happens when a culture abandons scripture? The last thing, it invites God's judgment. And we may be on the verge of seeing some of that, particularly because of what happened this week. We need to be prepared for it. Now, I'm not going to deal with all of that necessarily, other than to introduce this passage that uh, Paul gives to Athenians. And from the passage, we're going to find out there's some characteristics of the Athenians that somewhat parallel the culture in which we live in. So in chapter 17, after the story about Thessalonica and Berea, we'll pick up in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, and like I said, he probably did not intend to end there, but because of the circumstances, he finds himself at Athens. And his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So this was a culture, this was a secular culture. This was a culture that was idolatrous. This was a culture that science was the basis of their thinking, or humanism was the basis of thinking. See any parallels? This was a culture that had abandoned scripture. It was humanistic thinking. It was rationalism. It was man's philosophy. And he's going to deal with philosophers. And philosophers in the first century would be considered the elite or the scientific community of that day. And science is a big thing in our culture. So this is where Paul finds himself, and he's stirred in his spirit as he looks around himself and sees all of these idols. So the first part of the passage, he's gonna, there's going to be some questions or inquiries from intellectuals. That's going to run from verse 21, and then uh, Paul and... We may get a little bit past that, and then I'll kind of summarize the end there. And first of all, we see in verses 16 and 17, Paul takes the initiative. And if you notice from the outline, I'm using I as a literative tool. So if it doesn't quite fit the passage, uh, I kind of forced it in some places. <laughs> Might excuse that. So we have the inquiries of the intellectuals, 17, 16 through 21. Paul takes the initiative as a result of being stirred inwardly. And this word that is used, parazunno, 
has the idea of he was urged or stimulated or moved. And in some contexts, it even has the idea of being irritated. Probably not in this context, but he is, in fact, stirred. And, and inside of him, I'm sure there was an ache and there was a, a heartfelt feeling for people that are trapped in this culture that he finds himself in by accident, basically. Well, not, not accident, but basically God's design. So that's the word that we have there. And then the next, the last part of verse 16, as he was beholding the city full of idols. And just imagine yourself in the city of Athens. Imagine yourself along with Paul. You would have seen all of the following all over the city. And I'm going to go through these real quickly. I'm not going to explain any of them. But you would have seen statues of Poseidon. And he was a god. He was uh, the god of, of the sea and other things as well. And archaeologists has uncovered all of these uh, artifacts that I'll show you. There were statues and even structures dedicated to Artemis, another god, a Greek god. And that's just a copy of several that were in the city of Athens. Dionysus, god of wine, which was very popular in Athens, vegetation, pleasure, festivity, etc. So this was a prominent god. Paul is observing all these things. He's seeing these statues. He's seeing these idols. These come from 1st, 2nd, 3rd century. This is what Paul was observing. This is what stimulated him inwardly to think in terms of reaching out and somehow uh, communicating the gospel to this culture. And we're going to see that he uses a tactic that we can use today because he deals with them differently than he would deal with a different audience that comes from a biblical worldview. He's dealing with a culture that is lost or is abandoned or perhaps in some ways maybe never had a biblical worldview. So he's going to deal with them differently. So he's seeing all these things. He's seeing temples, such as that one in the photograph there. Zeus, very popular also. Athena another Greek and Roman god. These are the things that he's observing. Aphrodite, another one. And like I said, these all come from that culture. These are things that Paul would have observed. And had you been with Paul, you would have been able to see all of these things as well. And that stirs him to action. And you're familiar with the Parthenon, which still exists today, and you can uh, visit it and be impressed with even the architecture. Uh, one writer, in fact, one philosopher, Petronius, says, in Athens it is easier to find a god than a man. And that's what stimulated uh, Paul. Just the idolatrous nature of that whole culture, not only in Athens, but focused in the city of Athens. So the first principle, I'm going to lay out some principles here. And on the outline sheet, I have numbers in the margin there, kind of an outline within an outline. These are the principles that we can apply as we look at our culture that is similar to the culture that uh, Paul dealt with in the first century. Number one principle here is we need to be spiritually prepared. And Paul, not planning to be in Athens, but well-equipped and thought about ahead of time a way to approach this culture, he was prepared to deal with this culture. So when he finds himself on the scene... He's not uh, without words to be able to communicate, and that's what we need to do. We need to be so saturated in God's word to be able to respond to whatever situation we find ourselves, and that takes preparation. That doesn't happen overnight. 
We need to train ourselves in thinking in terms of worldviews. Because one of the underlying themes of this whole sermon of Paul is he's not going to deal with this culture. He's not going to deal with it from Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean he's not going to be biblical. He's not going to quote a single biblical passage. You can say, well, that's not biblical. Well, it is biblical because everything that he addresses, he's going to deal with it from the perspective of a worldview, a biblical worldview. He's going to lay out biblical ideas from a biblical worldview without using Scripture. In fact, the quotation that he quotes out of, later on in the passage, is out of one of their own poets. But he's using it in the context of a worldview. And because our culture does not have a familiarity with a lot of spiritual concepts, it sometimes is difficult to share the gospel with them, and we need to approach our culture similarly to what Paul did in terms of a, a worldview. So we need to be prepared spiritually to begin with. Now, in verse 17, so he was reasoning in the synagogue, and this is his pattern. He generally sought out uh, fellow Jews because they had a biblical worldview, and he could easily bring the Old Testament to light. But this message ends up outside of the synagogue where there are not that kind of people. So the message that he presents here in Acts chapter 17 to this pagan culture, this culture outside of a biblical worldview, is different from the way that he addressed another group at uh, Antioch in chapter 13. In chapter 13, he's in the synagogue addressing Jewish people that at least have a biblical worldview, familiar with Scripture. They're not believers necessarily because they're Jewish and they have that background, but they at least have a foundation in Scripture. This group does not in Athens. So what he does is he takes them back to the Old Testament and uses the Old Testament and eventually gets to the Lord Jesus Christ laying that foundation. This is totally different because this group does not have a biblical worldview. So just to give you a feel for where everything is, uh, he's going to address this group from this agora, which is outside the synagogue. There would have been a synagogue nearby. That's basically the, the business area. It's a, The agora is basically the marketplace in Greek and the famous Acropolis where he saw all of these idols to give you a perspective of first century Athens. So he's seeing all of these remains that archaeologists found, and he's reasoning, is actually the word that is used there, give you the Greek word dialegomai, which has the idea of discussing. In other words, he's not preaching to them. He's interacting with them. He's talking. He's exchanging ideas. He's probing their thoughts, and he's discussing these ideas, and we have the substance of it, or the essence of it, contained in chapter 17. That same word is used elsewhere in chapters 17 and 18 if you want to look them up there as well. So this is the entrance to the Agora where part of this took place because it says he's reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles and in the Agora or in the marketplace. So this is where Paul was, literally and physically in the first century. And he's doing this uh, continuously, it says, every day. In other words, this is not a one-time thing. 
and uh, with those who happened to be present. So he didn't call a meeting. Whoever was there, whoever gathered, he would discuss these things with them. Just another shot of the same area, just to give you kind of a feel, a visual picture. This is a real story that happened in real time. Another photograph of the archaeological remains of the Agora, or what is contained in the passage in Acts chapter 17. Another perspective, same area. So Paul is spiritually prepared. Number one, second principle, Paul takes the initiative. These people didn't come to him. He goes out to them. And that's a basic principle of evangelism in general. We need to go out into the world not being afraid to interact with the culture in which we live in. This is what Paul does. This is why he is stimulated in his spirit, and that moves him. He has a desire to share the gospel. These people are hurting. These people are deceived. These people are lost. These people are headed for eternal damnation. This motivates Paul. I need to at least do what I can in the short time that I will be in Athens and attempt to lead some of these people to Christ. And he's not going to present the gospel immediately. In fact, once he even steps into the gospel at the end of the passage, then they interrupt him and stop him, and he's not even able to complete probably what he wanted to say. But he lays the groundwork by appealing to them on the basis of worldview, which... They were familiar with philosophy and argumentation and discussion and that sort of thing. And he addresses them from their perspective using biblical principles. He's thoroughly biblical. He doesn't say anything that is not contained in principle in Scripture, but he does it without overtly quoting Scripture because they would have shut him off and says, well, we've abandoned that. We, we don't want to hear that. But he does basically teach them from uh, a biblical worldview. And he takes the initiative. So that's the uh, initiative of Paul, 16 and 17. And this stirs their interest, the interest of these philosophers that were interested in hearing different ideas. And they say in the next passage, in verse 18, and also some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. In other words, they're entering into that dialogue. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, that's how it's translated. Now, in that culture, when they say Jesus, which is Jesus, and when they say the resurrection, they're using Jesus and Anastasis, probably in a different way than perhaps a Jewish culture would say it. Their thinking in terms of, is this another God, this Iesus? Another one, much like these others that we're very familiar with. Anastasis, is this another philosophical idea? Is this another, perhaps, God as well? Uh, they're not referring to the resurrection necessarily of Jesus Christ. This is their thinking. They're not necessarily referring to Jesus of Nazareth, but they have this idea from the culture, and they're responding, and Paul's going to respond to that. So that's the words and the terminology that he uses. And it's going to take place on a little rock that you can visit today if you uh, go to Athens that still remains, and there it is on the photograph. 
just off the Acropolis, right on that spot, where he's meeting with the scientists of the day. There's a, another shot from the Acropolis. To give you a perspective of size, there's two persons there, so it gives you an idea of where Paul was. And that hasn't changed for 2,000 years, that rock. Maybe chipped off a little bit, but other than that. Epicurus, one of the philosophers that's mentioned here, or the Epicureans, they followed Epicurus. He believed that philosophy could liberate one from fears of death and supernatural. Does that sound familiar today? What does philosophy say today? Rationalism, humanism, can what? <laughs> can help us cope with the world which we live in? This was a philosophy, and I'm going to outline it real quickly for you here. So the Epicureans of the first century, they were the materialists of the first century. They believed in materialism. They believed in naturalism. In other words, they would have been naturalistic scientists. And when you think of philosophy, think of the thinkers of the day. Think of science. Think in terms of the elite thinkers of that day. So the Epicureans, they were also hedonistic. In other words, live life to the fullest, enjoy things, enjoy life, even to excess. So they were hedonists. The Stoics, they were self-sufficient, independent. Anyone uh, familiar with that today? Is that kind of the culture? Just, you know, I want to do my own thing. Leave me alone. I'm independent. I'm self-sufficient. They were also believed in pantheism as well as polytheism, but particularly the Stoics were pantheistic. Do we have a problem with pantheism today in our culture? We have a problem with all of those. In fact, all of those are prevalent in our culture. I'll show you this slide again, showing the 21st century in a moment. So what Paul is doing here, after he takes the initiative and he res he's going to respond to the interest of these philosophers. In fact, let me read further into the text. So in verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Arapagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. So they're curious about this new philosophy, Iesus and Anastasis, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, things they've never heard before. We want to know, therefore, what these things mean. And that opens the door. He's kind of laid the foundation. He stirred their curiosity. They've asked the question. He's going to give them an answer. So in, uh, in the next verse, well, we have an explanatory verse there, verse 21. Now, all the Athenians and uh, the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. In other words, whatever can stimulate my ears, whatever can stir my interest, I might be interested in that. Any familiarity with the culture that we live in? People looking for new things. And in verse 22, and Paul stood in the midst of the Arachnopagus and said, and now this is his, his introduction. And what does he say, verse 22? Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. And what he's basically alluding to, and there's no way they can deny it. If somebody say, well, we're not religious, and he said, well, uh, what about that God over there? Uh, well, what about that temple? What about this cluster of gods? The impression I have, you all are very religious people. You, you believe in all of these gods. You have these multiple gods. And not only that, but what else does Paul say in verse 22? You're religious in all respects. And in verse 23, for a while I was passing through, examining the objects of your worship. 
I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. You even worship things that you don't even know about. You even have a God without a name, without an identification. And what he's doing is he's laying a foundation of what they believe because that is their perspective. That is their worldview. And later in the passage, he's going to dismantle that worldview and present a biblical worldview. And once he's thoroughly done that, then he moves into the gospel. And that's a skill that I think you and I need to be prepared to do as well, to be able to deal with a culture that believes in science. You probably need to do a little creation science. We're going to find out later on. This is where Paul starts. He starts with creation science. And he probably, we have a condensation of what he says, and probably what he did is he probably expand this. And what the writer gives us, Luke, is just a summary of what he presented in uh, real life there. So he gets the interest of the philosophers, and now we're going to have the illumination of Paul, and we have this sermon to the Athenians. And he's going to deal with ideology or worldview. That's going to be the essence of what he's going to do. That's, first of all, verses 22 and 23, and he's going to attack their worldview. And let's talk a little bit about worldviews, just so you know what I'm talking about when we mention worldviews. A worldview is something that, the way that you view reality, the way that you view the world, everybody has a worldview. Most people don't know it. Most people are unaware of the worldview that they have. But you and everyone else actually responds to the world in which we live in from that worldview, and that includes unbelievers and believers. That's why it's important to develop a biblical worldview so we respond to things the way that God would have us respond. So we can respond to things from a biblical perspective. That's why we need to develop a biblical worldview because that is a reflection of reality. But first of all, everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a perspective as to how they respond to things around them. So how you view the world around you and how you live life as a result, that's your worldview. Okay? The Athenians had a worldview that was secular, polytheistic, and had some other elements that we'll look at in a moment. So your worldview determines how you live, and that's the case today. The worldview of the Supreme Court has been exposed. They do not have a moral base, including some of the so-called conservatives. They've lost that moral base, and they are ruling in accordance with their worldview. And what we saw on display is basically that worldview, which calls evil good and good evil. So your worldview will determine how you live. And here's just a summary of the main elements of a worldview in contrast. I'll give you the contrast in a moment. But first of all, Every worldview, and this is where you want to start, this is where Paul starts. A worldview begins with a perspective on who God is. And what you can do is just start asking questions. Ask people, what do they conceive of when it comes to the idea of God? And some will say, well, I don't believe that there's a God. That's an atheistic worldview, but that is a worldview. That is a perspective. Some would say, well, I, I think there's a God, but uh, you can't know him. Well, that's agnosticism. 
Or they might respond, well, I believe God, but he's so far away that I don't know that he communicates. You know, the whole spectrum. And what you want to do is try to analyze. This is one of the things that Paul is going to do. He's going to analyze their worldview, and he's going to dismantle it when he begins dealing with the, with the biblical worldview. So that's the beginning of a worldview, is a person's perspective on who God is. And Paul's going to start there. A second element is what is ultimate reality? When it comes to a worldview, what is ultimate reality? And let me just expand that a little bit in terms of when you speak of reality, what is the universe like? The materialist worldview believes that the universe is all that there is, that there's only one level of existence. That's ultimate reality to the uh, materialist and most people in our culture. The biblical worldview is there's two levels of existence. There's an entire spiritual realm that is unseen, that cannot be perceived apart from God revealing it. It's the realm from which God exists and from which God deals with, and the realm from which we will spend eternity. That's ultimate reality. So, worldviews deal with theology, their view of God, deals with metaphysics, people's view of the universe in general. What is the universe like? It also deals with knowledge, that's epistemology, the whole science of the nature of knowledge, can you know things, etc. Well, the unbelieving, in this context, the unbelieving worldview is had a, had a polytheistic worldview. And probably you could add atheistic, which is pretty common in our culture as well. And they only believed in a material realm in terms of ultimate reality. And reason was the bottom line. These are philosophers. These are scientists. Reason. Human reason. Fourthly, another element is ethics. How do you live? What is right? What is wrong? Relativism. Sound familiar? What is right to you may not be right for me. What's right for me may not fit you. That's relativism. Homosexuality is okay. Um, you know, so we make it okay in our culture. That's relativism. There's no sense of a moral foundation or a moral base. That's relativism. Uh, that's different from a biblical worldview. In terms of mankind, man is basically good. It's more his environment that causes him to do evil things. That's the unbelieving worldview. And in terms of uh, destiny, in other words, what is after this life, it varies. And I could describe more kind of the whole spectrum of worldviews today, but we don't have time to do that. So that's a kind of an introduction. I'll give you the other side of the slide in a moment here. Worldviews are important, and I want to illustrate that with this one slide. In that, and I use this, uh, I do a lot of creation science, and I deal with the facts of nature, if you will, from a biblical worldview, which is different from the facts of nature from a secular worldview. And the point I'm making in this slide is if you begin with presupposition A, or you can substitute a worldview A, if you begin with a materialistic worldview, for example, or an evolutionary worldview, which is part of a secular humanistic worldview, when you look at the actual physical data, and in this case, perhaps layers of rock in geology or fossils or whatever, when you look at the data and you're looking at it from that perspective, you're putting on a set of glasses, and I should have brought some sunglasses to illustrate this, 
And you're seeing the data through those glasses. So if those glasses are distorted or if they're darkened, then you're going to have a darkened view of the data. And I'm talking about real scientific data here. That's going to sway how you interpret the data. That's why there's a conflict between what we believe as believers concerning things like creation versus evolution, concerning the existence of a Genesis flood, concerning the age of the earth. Because the scientific community as a whole is looking at the data from the perspective of a humanistic worldview. So they come to different conclusions. They come to conclusions that they observe evolution. If you start from a different worldview or different set of presuppositions, B, and B would represent the biblical worldview, so you could add to the data. We have more data because we have revelation that explains the natural realm. If you look at that data and given that revelation, you're going to come to a different conclusion, and that's why there's a conflict. It's not because of the data. The data supports a biblical worldview. And I teach a whole course on this, and I could give you a whole course just on the data itself. So this is what we are up against in the culture we live in. We're in conflict with a totally different worldview, and that's what Paul is dealing with in uh, chapter 17 of the book of Acts. So these philosophers, this is their worldview, the Epicureans, materialists, hedonists, Stoics, self-sufficient, pantheism. What about our culture? We materialistic? In terms of philosophy, I'm not talking about just buying a lot of stuff, but I'm talking about in terms of ultimate reality, very much so. We are a naturalistic, human naturalism, materialism. That is a philosophy of many people in our culture. What about hedonism? Isn't our culture described as an entertainment culture? Most people orient their whole lives around what's showing at night or movies or whatever, entertainment, sports, etc., and I like athletics, so I'm not down on any on, on these things in a right perspective, but an overemphasis is not good. What about Stoicism? Well, we have humanism today. That's man at the center. And in the 21st century, we have to deal with New Age and others that have a pantheistic idea or pantheistic worldview. That's the culture we live in. So it's very similar to what Paul is addressing. And I just put this here. Paul could have written this in the 21st century to you and I today, the passage that he's dealing with. So what he's pointed out in the passage that we just read earlier, what he's doing is he's showing the faulty understanding of their meaning of existence. What is reality all about? What is ultimate reality? They not only have a polytheistic idea concerning God, but they also have a mixed bag when it comes to ultimate reality. And he's pointing that out in that those little statements that he makes. When he talks about you even have an idea of an unknown God, well, secondly, he calls to their own attention, their limitation, that they advertise. Here's a plaque that he saw or an inscription that he saw that they cannot deny. It's right there. He saw it. He could point it to them. And what he's basically saying, your worldview is deficient when it comes to epistemology. And you admit it in your inscription. You see what he's doing? He's dismantling their worldview when he addresses that unknown God. You even acknowledge that man's knowledge has limitations. And what he's dealing with here 
is when you deal with revelation, we have absolute truth. We have revelation from the source of all truth, in fact, the person that is truth, and that truth is absolute and unlimited. Their knowledge is limited. He's also showing the weakness of the human intellect when he calls them ignorant. You're ignorant of these gods. So you have a weakness of human intellect. He's dismantling their worldview right in front of their eyes. And we need to develop that skill as well. So he takes the initiative, and what he's done is he's analyzed their worldview, probably not on the spot. He probably was well prepared, uh, principle number one. But what he does is he analyzes their worldview, and when you deal with individuals, what you want to do is probe and ask them questions, find out where they are, and begin to ask questions along the line of what they believe concerning God, and that's going to reveal a lot what they believe about mankind, what they believe about these major elements of a, of a worldview, to be able to analyze, okay, this is where I need to start with this individual. Now, you'll start with God, but you'll design how you address that depending on the perspective they're coming from. So you analyze the worldview, and in verse 24 through 25, he's going to give them instruction on a biblical worldview. And I'm not going to be able to finish that, but you have the outline sheet and you'll be able to finish it. So Paul's approach, let me give you the highlights here. He starts from a biblical worldview dealing with the most important element of that worldview. And notice what he does in verse 24. He doesn't argue the case of God. He says, the God, referring to a specific God, that is different from that unknown God, that is different from the pantheon of gods, the God, he says, who made the world and all things in it. He starts with creation science. He begins, and I could envision him not quoting out of Genesis 1, but basically laying out the concepts of creation science. He begins with the God that is the creator of all things. And there's a reason why he does this, and I'm not going to have time to develop this in too much detail, but if you study Romans 1, what he's going to do is he's going to appeal to them knowing what Romans 1 teaches. This is a biblical principle. Romans 1 teaches that everybody knows. In fact, the emphasis in Romans 1 is everyone knows that there is a God. There's not a single human being that has ever lived on the face of the earth, according to Romans 1, that does not know that God exists. So he doesn't argue the case. All he does is just basically remind them of something that they have already inside of them. And it's, the text tells us God himself revealed himself to them. And in that revelation, he makes sure that everyone knows that he exists. So they have a God consciousness. Now, some of that is reflected in their polytheism, which is totally distorted, but they have a sense that there is a God, and this is what he appeals to them. And we can do the same thing as well. You don't have to argue the case of God. What you can do is uh, basically remind them of something that's already within them. That's the heart of Romans 1. Verse 18 says, Our nature is to suppress that truth about who God is, and he argues a case there. In fact, if we had time, we have the realization of a real God. This is a summary of Romans 1. I could give you verses on there. 
Secondly, we are made responsible. The text says, therefore, all humanity is without excuse. So man is responsible for that general revelation. That general revelation isn't adequate for salvation, but it's adequate for condemnation. It makes all men responsible. And for those that respond to that, God reveals himself in special revelation in the gospel message. But what man does, rather than respond positively, he suppresses that truth, rejects that truth, that's also in the passage, Romans 1, and once man rejects that truth, he rationalizes it away and comes up with other ideas. Sound familiar in our culture? Different gods, different concepts of God, realization or or rationalization. That rationalization leads to reprobation, in other words, God is going to deal with them. God is going to reject them. God is going to judge them. And then they replace the true God with idols. That's also in uh, Romans chapter 1. They replace uh, the God of of the Bible with gods that they make up out of the, the creation. And all of that leads to what's the last word that sounds like it starts with an R? In verse 18, anyone, anyone come up with it? Wrath. <laughs> Doesn't start with an R, but it, or same sound. That's a summary of Romans 1. That's where he starts. He starts with God. And he's gonna describe the God of the Bible without quoting scripture, but it's an accurate and a biblical description. And he's gonna not only dismantle, but replace their worldview with a biblical worldview. And then later on in the passage, after he's given all of this data, he's gonna call on them to change their mind. What is the biblical word? Repent. And if you look at the end of the passage, this is what he calls upon them. Change your worldview in order that you might be receptive to the truth of the gospel message. And that's where he's going to lead further. He's going to assume, number four, the principle here, assumes God consciousness. He assumes the truth of Romans 1. And then he builds on that. And the the biblical worldview, he's going to describe a God that is personal. He's going to describe a Trinitarian God. He's going to describe a God that is creator of all things. And he's also going to deal with a spiritual realm. And he's going to deal with revelation without quoting that revelation. And he is coming from a perspective of absolutes. That's the biblical worldview. And he understands the fallen nature of mankind. Man created in the image, but fallen and needing salvation. And he's going to talk about judgment. He's going to talk about heaven and hell when he gets to the gospel message. So what he's doing is giving them a biblical worldview to reorient them. And now the responsibility is for them to respond. Now they have special revelation. Not only general revelation, but now they have special revelation. And that makes them doubly responsible and doubly liable to God's God's judgment. So he began with a biblical worldview, God is creator, and in the passage, I won't develop this, he starts with God is creator, he talks about a God that is sovereign, in fact, very quickly here, I think we have time to read these at least, God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. That is a God that is sovereign over heaven and earth. That's what lordship means. God has all of things under control. 
He is a sovereign God, and there's much that we could talk about there. He's also a God, notice what he says next, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, like your puny gods do, and you could point to any number of them. In other words, the God of the Bible is an omnipresent God. He's not confined like their gods. That's the biblical perspective. And then what does he say next? Verse 25, Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. What's that? The God of the Bible is a self-existent God. He has no needs outside of himself. He didn't need to create the universe. He has no needs. The opposite of you and I, we have multitude of needs. You Athenians have all kinds of needs. God has no needs. He's a self-existent God. Now, he doesn't use theological terms. He doesn't use theological language, but he's describing these concepts, these ideas. Since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. In other words, he supplies the things that we need. Everything comes from him because he's the self-existent one. We could talk. The next thing he's going to deal with, and I think I'll skip over most of this, In verse 26, and he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. That, verse 27, what he's doing is he's giving them a complete philosophy of history. Look that one up in your world history UNM textbook. See if you can find a complete philosophy of history. And very quickly, let me give you some of the elements of that. God as creator is the ultimate author of history. That's what he's essentially saying here. And he's attacking their deficient view of world history. What he's also doing here is God is sovereign over world history. He has a plan. That plan God has instituted. Things are not random. What does the text say there? He determined. There's the plan. And not only just random things. In fact, they're not random. He determined specific things concerning rise and fall of empires. Existence of nations. Even geography. He's determined that. That's a sovereign God with a sovereign plan. So he goes back to sovereignty, but he's dealing with world history here or the concept of history. It's a linear concept. And if you want a summary of the whole Bible, it's basically his story. It's a story about God. And the whole Bible deals with God revealing his glory. That's the heart of all of the Bible. And on one slide, this is all of the Bible. First of all, God deals with mankind through Israel. That's all of the Old Testament. What does Israel anticipate and look forward to? Messiah. So all of the Old Testament is simply, you could summarize the Old Testament as the anticipation of Messiah, the coming of Messiah, the one that will solve the problem of sin, the major problem of mankind. What does the New Testament deal with? Well, first of all, Israel rejected their Messiah, and Jesus made some prophecies And he founded his church. The New Testament deals with the church and how the church should function. And how does world history end? God brings all that together in his kingdom. On earth, 
The millennial kingdom is part of world history that takes place on planet Earth. That's a summary of the whole Bible. This philosophy of history, it's not cyclic. It is linear. It's a linear concept. God has a beginning. God has an end. There's an eternity past. There's an eternity future. In between is world history. God has a plan where he's executing that plan, and he's going to bring it about, and he's going to bring it to an end. This is what he's telling the philosophers. He's given them a philosophy of history here. And it involves time and geography. That's in the text. It also has a divine purpose. And I wish I had time to develop that. But in verse 27, history has a purpose. You can't find a purpose for world history in your UNM world history text. In fact, events are somewhat random. And who knows what the future is? Man does not know. So history cannot know. History cannot have a divine purpose. Real history, God's history, biblical history, there is a divine purpose, and he gives that. And the purpose is that man may come into a relationship with God. So he has orchestrated events such that everyone has an opportunity to respond to the creator God that he describes. So this is what Paul is doing. Uh, History is a record of God dealing with his creation, And there's a purpose of history that man may seek him. And let's add the deficiency. They have an inadequate view of history, so he's dismantling their view of history. And fifthly, he's showing the inconsistency of their humanistic worldview. And what he does is he ends up refuting that worldview. I actually was able to get further than what I anticipated (laughs) Abbreviated a few spots, but praise the Lord, I think you got the idea. Uh, he presents the gospel at the end, and then he's rejected, so there's a response of the Athenians at the end there. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we praise you for your word. It's your revelation. We praise you that uh, we believe that you have inspired it, and we believe that it is inerrant and is reliable, and we can trust in it. Equip us, enable us, Lord, that we may be able to deal with this world that we live in that uh, has abandoned you, has abandoned your word, and as a result has has adopted a worldview that is in conflict with the biblical worldview that you presented to us in your word. So equip us, enable us, make us sensitive, stir within us like you stirred within Paul, to have a compassion, to have a a sense of mission, a, a sense that we can reach this world in which we live in. And we just commit ourselves to you, desiring that you'd use us in these perilous times, in the midst of evil, and even looking forward to what you may have in store for our country as a result of what we have determined as a culture. So we just praise you that you have a plan, and it's part of that bigger plan. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.